0: band. You guys can go ahead and be seated and it's good to see you this morning. Welcome to Crossroads. Uh, My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor. If you're new with us, man, I'm grateful that you are uh, here to join us today as we sing, as we open God's word, as we uh, seek to worship uh, the God who we love so much uh, today over this next hour. So I'm grateful uh, that you're here as we begin today. um, I don't know if you heard or not, but in a couple of weeks, the new Barbie movie is coming out. Any Barbie fans in here? Oh yeah, six of you, good, yeah. Yeah, $100 million the first weekend and six of you are gonna go see it. I actually have a buddy who goes here and he told me that he's gonna go see Barbie. uh, The day it comes out, he's gonna see Barbie and then he's gonna follow that up with Oppenheimer, you know, the movie about the atomic bomb that blows the whole world up. And so that is a movie, movie day. Now, for the six of you who answered this, this might be a little bit more difficult. I thought we might have a few more Barbie fans, but I think you're gonna be okay. So pop quiz, what is Barbie's favorite color? Pink, good, yes, you knew, pink, it is pink, yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard it or not, but um, this will be a Trivial Pursuit question in probably like seven, ten years, but the world actually ran out of pink paint as they were building the set for the Barbie movie because of all the pink that they used, okay? So all of this is going somewhere. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that um, we live in a world that any time someone puts their trust in Jesus as their savior, that they turn pink, like Barbie world pink, all right? You with me? And uh, it's so noticeable, it's so noticeable that as you walk around, you immediately know, like, "Ah, aha, yeah, that person's a believer, that person there with Jesus. Like, that's how pink we would become. And you could just spot these pink people all over the place. Now, even though we were all pink, we would all have, you know, different stories, we would have, you know, different ethnicities, we would have different backgrounds, we might even come from different denominations, right? Like, some of us might be, you know... Baptist, and others might be Methodist, and some of us might be Presbyterian, but we're still all pink, right? And and because we're all pink, we could cut through, and we'd come to realize that you know, no matter if we were at school or at work, or you know, walking through the mall or sitting down at the coffee shop drinking our lattes, that when you saw a pink person, no matter what you thought, in God's eyes and God's economy, they're in. You're pink, you're in. Like if someone walks by you and and they're pink, they're in no questions. They're perfectly saved in Jesus. If you're pink, you're in. Now, everything that I just said outside of Barbie World Pink is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. So here's my question. Why is the church so filled with division? If we're all a bunch of pink people walking around absolutely saved in Jesus, why is the church filled with division? Last week we started a brand new sermon series called The Body where we are looking at and trying to rediscover the church, the biblical view of church. And if you were here last week, then one of the things that we saw is that as we open up the New Testament, what we find when the New Testament writers start to write about the church is that they don't write about the church like an organization or institution or even a building that you come to. But rather, when we see the New Testament authors start to write about the church, they speak of it as this body, like this organism that is living and alive. And what we said last week is that is so counter to oftentimes the way that we see church in our culture, right? Like for most of us, church in our culture is a building that we come to or an event that we're a part of. Like, hey, what times church start? Like, where's your church, right? Like, like there's this idea in us that this is an institution, an organization, a building, an event. And yet when we open up the New Testament scriptures, what we find is that this, the New Testament writers, they don't ever, hardly ever write in that kind of way. They always write about this living organ That is moving and a part of the world And so really over these five weeks of this series We are looking at what does it look like to to rediscover that biblical view of church And the way that we're doing that is by diving into a little book that we find in the New Testament called the book of Ephesians Now Ephesians was written by a man named the Apostle Paul We call him the Apostle Paul His name was Paul We add Apostle to it That's not his first name Apostle Paul that's a Benny trail. We don't need to go down. Anyways, okay. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. It's amazing, an amazing little book uh, in that. And in the book of Ephesians, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, there are 10 times Paul uses the word body to describe the mystery of the church. And in doing so, he helps us understand what this thing is that we're a part of. And so if you have your Bibles today, I'm going to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first six verses of the Bible, uh, of these verses, of this part of the letter. And as you turn there, I want you to know that um, when it comes to this letter of Ephesians, Paul does something a little bit interesting. He actually divides the book in two. And so the first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, are all doctrine, all truth, all reality. That's what they are. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. They're all about practical living. In chapters 1, 2, and and 3, Paul says this is what's true of God. This is what is true of us. This is is what it looks like to to put your faith in Jesus. This is who you are in Jesus. And just as a quick reminder of what that is, is Paul says that before the foundations of the earth, Before the world was even ever created, for reasons that will probably remain unknown to you and me, that God chose you. That God chose you. He chose you to be set apart and to be holy, to to be blameless without blemish, so that he could pour out every spiritual blessing that he has to offer onto you. That he loves you and he loves you so much that he has adopted you as sons and daughters of his, that he has made you children of God, which means that you are the heir to the family fortune. And he takes great delight and pleasure in you. He takes this delight and pleasure in redeeming you, in in, in freeing you from your sin, and seeing you set free from the slavery of sin. And he is so committed, so committed to the love that he has for you, that he's actually put his spirit, that his spirit, God's spirit, indwells in you to give you the power that you need to live this life in such a way that you are the body. You are the church manifesting Jesus in the world. I mean, just take a moment just to pause and to think about those realities of what true, that that they are true of you in Jesus. I mean, we are talking about acceptance here, we're talking about belonging and significance and value and worth, that these extravagant riches are poured out upon you because of God's grace and mercy, I mean, it's breathtaking. It is stunning to realize how much the God of the universe loves us. And so that's all chapters one, two, and three. We get into chapters four, and Paul makes this turn where he's like, okay, we're going to get hands-on. What does it look like now to live this out in the world? If all of these extravagant riches are true of us, what does it now look like to live in the everyday arenas of our lives? What does it look like to take these amazing doctrines and bring them alive in our lives? And as Paul begins to answer that question in chapter 4, fortunately for us in our series, he answers right at the top the defining characteristic of the church. Like there's one quality that the church should embody Paul gives it to us in these verses. We pick it up in chapter four, starting in verse one. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul begins this verse with the word therefore, which means he's going back in history. He's going back to what he's previously written. He's going back to chapters one, two, and three. And he says, those three chapters, all of that stuff that is true of you is your calling. That if you are someone in Jesus, that is your calling. It's full of doctrine. It's full of truth. This is the reality of who you are. He says, because you have put your faith in Jesus, you are now an adopted child of God. And because of that, God has made you the heir to the family fortune, to the extravagant riches that are yours. And it's because you have these extravagant riches, he says, now I am begging you, I am urging you, I am imploring you to live a life that is worthy of who God says that you are. He says, if chapters one through three are true, and this is who you are, then I am begging you to live a life worthy of that calling. Now, the word worthy there, in our English, we get the word axiom. An axiom is a word that means that it's been established, that something is accepted, that it's self-evidently true. And so chapters 1, 2, and 3 basically say, as Paul writes, this is fantastic news. We are all heirs to the family fortune, which means that we, each of us, who have put our faith in Jesus, that we have the power and the resources needed to live lives where that is obvious and self-evident. Paul says, here's the riches... Here's what it looks like to live in those riches, that there should be a lifestyle that is consistent with who we understand ourselves to be in Jesus. I therefore urge you, plead with you, beg you to live a life worthy of that which you have been called. To which we all raise our hand and go, Paul, what does that life look like? And Paul says, it's a life that looks like, verse 3, A life that is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now in verse 2, Paul's going to tell us how we do that. And we'll get there in a moment. But the main point that Paul wants us to get is that the distinguishing quality, the defining characteristic of the church, of someone who understands all that God has done for them, is someone who maintains the unity of the spirit that that is the defining quality of the church. Okay, I can see that you're really jazzed about this. You're as excited about this as you are the Barbie movie. Now, honestly speaking, honestly speaking, if we were to take a poll today, um, this probably would not show up as the defining quality of the church. It just wouldn't. Which may lead us to a bit of surprise when we find out that this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus prayed this prayer in John chapter 17, starting in verse 17. He's praying to the Father, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is the followers that are walking with Jesus in his, in his life. He says, I'm not praying for them only, but also for those who believe in me through the word. He's praying for future believers. On the eve of Jesus's prayer, I mean, just wrap your mind around this. He's praying for me and you. That's what verse 20 is. He's, he's praying for me and you. And here's his prayer, verse 21, that they may be what? One. one. That they may be One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I live in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That Jesus, in this moment, on the eve of his crucifixion, says, I want them, God, let them know the truth. That is, let them know who they are in you. Let them know who, who you are and, and, and what it looks like to walk as your children. Wash them in that truth. Scrub them, sanctify them, make them clean in that truth. Because as they walk into the worlds, my prayer is that they would be one. And the reason that they would be one, that they would be unified, is so that when they're walking out into the world, that the world would know that it's Jesus, me, who has sent them there. That Jesus says, as you move into this world, the defining quality of you as the body of Christ, the way that the world will know that you are his, is because of your unity. He says, Father, I pray for their unity. I pray that they would be one. Years later, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he goes, hey church, let's remember Let's remember the words of Jesus. Let's remember who you are, that you are heirs to the family fortune. Therefore, I am urging, begging you to walk a life that is worthy of your calling. Be one, be unified, be zealous to maintain the unity. Now, what's interesting as Paul writes these words here is what he says. See, Paul reminds us that we're not the ones who actually create the unity, that we're the ones who protect it. He says, be zealous to maintain the unity, to protect the unity. Now, just to go deep here for a moment theologically, it would be correct to say that every single one of us who has trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we are perfectly unified in the heavens. That for every single one of us who has trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we are perfectly unified with each other in heaven, now and forever. Now and into eternity. That this is is a deep theological truth of the scriptures, that you are unified with one another perfectly in heaven right now. And we are equal in every way not because of our own performances, not because of how great we are, not because of how smart we are, not because of how articulate we are, not even because of our stories, that we are equal in every way because we are equally in Jesus. And we stand equal in Jesus now and forever, now and into eternity. Now, the problem is, is while this may be true of us in heaven right now, that is rarely the case on earth. While we may all be unified in heaven right now because we are equal in Jesus, rarely is that the case for us on earth. And so Paul is looking at us and he's saying to us, he's saying, look, I'm urging you, the lifestyle that I'm urging you to is to be diligent, to be zealous, to preserve the unity on earth To preserve the unity on earth that is true of us in heaven already. That God has already created the unity that our role, our job, is to maintain, to preserve, to protect that unity. Now, I think it would be fair to say for most Christians... That when it comes to putting together a list of the most important things that we're about as Christians, unity is probably not at the top of the list. In fact, for most of us, myself included, unity would probably fall somewhere to the bottom if we even mentioned it at all. And Paul comes along and says, hey, look, you've got to understand that unity is a big deal. It's not something you can just shrug your shoulders at and go, you know what, we'll figure it out, we'll move on. No, Paul says this is a big deal. It's a big, big deal to God. In fact, he shares a story in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can read it at home when you get home today, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to give you the Matt Manning short version of it, all right? So there's this church in Corinth. And in Corinth, one of their regular rhythms is that they would come together for a potluck, and during the potluck, they would do communion, all right? So they did communion in the first century, a little different than we do. You know, we give you pieces of styrofoam and bag grape juice and call that communion. In the first century, in the first century, they'd have a potluck, they'd break bread, they would drink wine, and that was communion. That was the meal. And so during this meal in the Corinthian church, things are going on, and there's this conflict that's happening around the meal, And there's all this disunity that begins to sprout up because of people's sinful behavior, because people are being all judgy. And people are leaving the meal sick, and some of them are even dying. And Paul comes on the scene, and he looks at the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says, you think that some of you are walking away from the potluck, and you got food poisoning. I'm here to tell you that ain't food poisoning. That is God's punishment on you. He says, for others of you, you think that, you know, Margie's tuna casserole killed old poor Bob. That didn't happen. Poor Bob died because God took him out because he was causing disunity in the church, that God's displeasure with him and his disunity. And we look at that and we go, for real? And Paul says, yeah, for real. Like, there's not a lot of stories like this in the New Testament, but it's there for a reason. And it's to help us understand the perspective that when it comes to unity, that God is very, very serious when it comes to unity in his body. That we can't just shrug this off. We can't just go, you know what, we'll we'll figure it out. You know, we'll put it on the list somewhere on the bottom. You can't do that. I can't do that. And the question that you and I have to wrestle with is this, is that when it comes to the church, what am I willing to do to preserve the unity? What am I willing to do to preserve the unity of the body of Christ? See, Paul says, I implore you. I beg you. He doesn't say that very often in his letters. I beg you to preserve the unity on earth that's already true in heaven. And so I'm back in verse 2, he says this is how we do it. He writes this, verse 2, that we do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In other words, this unity doesn't just happen, that unity comes from a, really, because of a depth of character. That's what's how unity comes, that, the hue, that, that unity comes because of a depth of our character, because people are willing to, to give of themselves, they're willing to, to, to put away their selfish desires, they're willing to put away their consumeristic desires, and they put, put all of those aside for the greater good of the gospel, for the mission of the church. And Paul says, if you want to do that, if you're serious about unity, here's the virtues that you need to embody. And he begins with humility. He begins with humility. Now, humility, when we talk about humility, it's one of the more difficult virtues to define. And the reason for that is if you were to look up humility in the dictionary, you would find that humility is defined as a lowliness of mind, a lowliness of mind. And when we hear that definition, almost immediately we think that humility is where we're supposed to think low of ourselves. It's kind of misleading. See, when it comes to humility, If we were to take this lowliness of mind, it would actually be contrary to chapters 1, 2, and 3, wouldn't it? I mean, Paul has just spent three chapters reminding us of who God is and who we are in God. That God takes deep pleasure in us, that he's satisfied with us, that he thinks so highly of us, that we are so treasured, that he has made us heirs to the family fortune. Like this is who we are in Jesus. To turn around and now say to think low of yourself is not just, it would not be humility, it would be unbelief. That's what it would be. See, the whole idea of humility is not lowly thoughts of myself, but rather thinking as others as more important than myself. Humility is this idea where where I see other people and immediately I place them as more important than than myself. It's a choice to give myself away. Think about it like this. That our whole culture right now is infatuated with identity. That everything's about identity. How I identify what I identify with. That everything in our culture right now is around identity. And often in our society, identity is... or tied to performance-based systems, a a system that requires you to be selfish every single day of your life, that every day is about your own significance, about your own meaning, about your own self-esteem, that every day your life is filled with selfishness as you constantly compare and compete yourself against others. The system requires you to be selfish every single day by measuring yourself against the other people in your life. When we are there trying to find our identity through a performance-based system, there is, come on, there is no room for humility. Zero room for humility in that kind of system. But when you realize the love that God has for you, how much he treasures you, And how your identity is completely based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now you can be rightly related to God. In that system you can find your your true identity. that, That your true identity isn't based on your performance. It's not on the basis of how good you are. It's totally based on what God, what Jesus has done for me. It's on the basis of God's mercy and his grace. And it means that it is eternally secure. That my identity is rooted in God's grace, therefore my self-esteem, my significance, my value, it doesn't go up and down, up and down, up and down every day, causing me to drive back to the mirror to look at myself, but rather it is secure, it is grounded. What is true of me today in Jesus will be true of me 10,000 years from now. It'll be true of me 1 million years from now. It'll be true of me for the rest of eternity. What is true of me and my identity in Jesus is secure. It's locked down. It never changes. And when we invest in that system, When we believe our identity from that system, it actually frees me from thinking about myself every moment of every day and actually allows me to start thinking about others as more important than myself. There's a change in my mind that begins to happen where I can give myself away, that I can choose to orientate myself differently, which is the whole idea of humility. This is what the first century Christians believed which was so radical to the culture during their day. That in the Roman culture, first century Roman culture, humility was not a virtue that people embodied. In fact, when it came to humility, it was the opposite. Humility was a sign of weakness. Humility was used to describe slaves. You were humble if you were a slave. In the Roman culture, particularly when it came to to Roman men, that the virtue was to be strong. To be strong meant that I could take care of myself, that I was the Lord of my own kingdom, that that, 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 I was the, that I was the king in all of this, that nobody decides my fate, that I am the master of where I'm going in my life. In Roman culture, it was actually a noble thing to look out for yourself, your needs, your desires above others. This is the way that culture acted. Then one day, this guy named Jesus shows up, and he starts speaking and teaching about humility in a totally radical way than the way that culture saw it. And not only did he teach about humility, but he actually lived it out and demonstrated it to its fullness by going to the cross and dying for the people that he proclaimed to love and to change the world. We can look back on history and we can see that it wasn't until after the crucifixion that humility became a virtue in leadership, not just in Jewish culture, but rather quickly in cultures around the world. So let's be real for a moment. What we experience in American culture is very much like first century Rome. At the end of the day, we are consumers. We're driven by a me-first mentality. When push comes to shove, what I want, what I desire, what I like takes priority over all other things, over all other people. And listen, as long as that is true, as long as that is true, we have no chance, no chance for unity. Zero chance. Only when we reorient ourselves around a new value system where our identity is rooted in the person of Jesus, can we embrace this radical new way of living, which is actually thinking above, of others above ourselves, where we truly can look and say, I'm giving myself away. And I'm telling you, if we were just able to lock down just this one virtue that Paul gives us, this one virtue, Every marriage, every family, every relationship, every business would be restored. If we just got this one virtue, all of the world would change. And we would actually have the chance to experience unity within the church, and we would experience peace, peace, real peace, in the world. It's why Paul says this is the first one that you gotta get. That humility changes everything. He moves on to number two. And he says, the second virtue that you need to take on is gentleness. Now, gentleness, the way that we can define that or what it means is strength under control. In fact, in in the ancient language, when this word was used, it was oftentimes used as to describe a gentle breeze. I like that. Actually, I like it a lot. Because we all know the power of wind in nature, don't we? That we've seen it on the news, we see how destructive wind can be, whether that be tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever. The the power of wind in nature, it can be destructive, but gentle. But but when it comes under control, it can be a gentle breeze, which is pleasant to us on a warm summer day. See, when it comes to gentleness. Gentleness conveys that I am really only as strong as my ability to control myself. Listen, guys, guys here in particular, when I cannot control my anger, I am not strong. When I cannot control my reactions, I am not strong. When I cannot control my desires, I am not strong. Strength is bringing all that I am under control through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you spend enough time in the Maddening household, you'll hear things like, Theo made me so mad. Mercy made me so angry. The truth is, is that no one can make you angry. Only you can. That you choose to be angry. And the more strength that you have through the power of the Spirit, the more you can bring all of that under control. Come on, you don't have to react to everything. You don't have to be offended by everything. You don't have to get angry about everything. You don't even have to have an opinion about everything. Paul says, be a gentle breeze. Be strength under control. That creates the greater context for unity. The third thing that he gives us is patience. And when you hear the word patience, I know we all roll our eyes and go, nobody prays for patience, right? We know what that means. But patience, in the original language, means to be long-tempered. We've all known people in our lives, in our family, in our workplace, that is quick-tempered or short-tempered. And, and we know the results of that, don't we? That when we live with someone who is short-tempered, intimacy is difficult, isn't it? When we live with someone who is, who is quick-tempered, it's... It's hard to feel safe. When we live with someone who is who is short-tempered, unity is almost impossible. Paul says, I want you to be the opposite of that. I want you to be, I want you to be long-tempered. I want you with humility and gentleness for, for you to be a person who others come to because you're safe. That when that when someone shows up in your presence to reveal something to you that maybe is surprising to you or shocking to you, or or you know, or you know no matter how what's about to happen is gonna happen, that you're a person that they know will listen. That's someone who's long-tempered. Paul gets to the fourth virtue and he says that we are to bear with one another in love. Now, this bearing with one another actually means tolerance or to tolerate. And unfortunately, the idea of, of, of tolerance in our culture today isn't very helpful for many when it comes to defining tolerance it's the idea that anything goes if you say anything that disagrees with me if you say with anything that opposes me if you say anything that challenges me then you're just labeled intolerance but come on tolerance by its very definition means or requires a difference of opinion doesn't it The whole definition of of tolerance is that we do have points of disagreement, that we do see things differently. That's why I have to endure you. That's why I have to tolerate you. You have, you will have disagreements, but in order to have a disagreement, you have have to have disagreements in order to tolerate anything in your life, right? Like, Like you're not bearing with one another unless there's a disagreement there. And so bearing with one another, when we read about it in Scripture, actually carries a greater meaning. Because what it's saying is that when you and I have disagreements, and we will, that we are to treat each other with honor. That we're to treat each other with the dignity that is deserved of one another. That we will approach this disagreement with respect, that two people can see these issues differently. It's the realization that that we will have differences of opinion, but at the end of the day, as people made in the image of God that I will choose to give you honor, respect, and the dignity that you deserve. See, the idea that Paul is operating here with is that there will be conflict in church. There is going to be things that happen to you. There will be things that hurt you. There will be things that cause you pain. There are gonna be things that happen that you don't agree with. And Paul says that in those moments we must bear with one another. Now I'm so grateful, I'm so glad that Paul said that we must endure with one another because this frees me from the hypocritical need to think that I or you am perfect. See, perfect people don't need to be endured, do they? Perfect people, they don't need forgiveness. We do. And we do often. See, Paul's not naive in this. He knows that even at Crossroads Church, that there are a few people who can be a bit critical, grumpy, unreliable. He knows that the senior pastor of Crossroads Church has all kinds of flaws. This is not how perfect people live together in unity, but rather how real imperfect people maintain, preserve, protect the unity of the spirit together. Paul says that when you put these four things together, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, when you put all of these together, you have a real chance. You have a real chance at being unified And so as you walk out into this world, that people will know because of your unity that I'm the one who sent you. That when you do these four things, when you put these four things, Paul says now you're living a life worthy of the calling that Jesus has placed upon you. We get to verses four through six, and, and he gives us this kind of theological foundation of why any and all of this matters. It's organized around the three persons of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Here's what he writes, starting in verse four. There's one body. He's talking about the church here. This is us and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you, one Lord, that's Jesus, who by his crucifixion had provided one faith, which is one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you would now have become a part of a new race. The Father is the creator of this new race. The Son is the one who has made it possible by one hope, right? Our hope in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross through our faith in one baptism. And the Spirit is the one who practically makes all of this happen in the lives in which we live. And he says, look, when it comes to this new race, this new race is not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's not American, it's not black, it's not white, it's not brown, it's not rich, it's not poor. The new race are those who are in Jesus, equal in every way. Not based on your performance, not based on how good you are, not based on your self-righteousness, but based on what Jesus has done for you. That this new race is not based on anything that you have done but solely on what Jesus has done for you. And because of that truth of the gospel, we are unified together forever. This is the worthy calling. This is the worthy calling to make our lives visible in vibrance on earth as it is in heaven. See, the true church is powerful And it's mysterious. And while empires have risen and fallen, the church remains. It's the church that is unified across all the boundaries that separate the world. And so, as we bring this to a close, what I want to do just for a moment is I want to give you an opportunity to ask the question or to answer the question, How am I doing? When it comes to the number one thing that Paul says that we should be about as a church, how are you doing? How are you doing at living a life that is worthy of the calling that's been placed on your life? Knowing that you are an heir to the family fortune as you walk out in this life, how are you doing? You can close your eyes for a moment. Think through that question. I imagine for many of, this, of us in this room, myself included, that as we try to answer the question, how am I doing, there's a lot of forgiveness that we need to seek. There's a reality that comes with a conversation on unity that maybe I'm not doing as well as I should be. Particularly when I realize that unity probably doesn't even my list, make my list of things that matter most. If that's you today, your next step, your practical next step out of the sermon is to go to those who you need to ask forgiveness of. To go to those who maybe you've caused disunity within the body of Christ. For others of you, you sit there and you try to answer the question and you realize, man, I'm, I'm not even in it. Like the reality is, is that I haven't even trusted Jesus as my Savior. Is that something that you desire in your life? We would love to have that conversation with you. The text line is up. You can text seven two zero five one three one nine three three. Text the name of Jesus there, and we'd love to walk with you of what it looks like to make Jesus your Savior for all of those riches that we've talked about the last two weeks, for those to be reality in your life and to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that the God of the universe has placed on your life. Would you bow your head and pray with me, Father? Lord, we know your presence is here. We read these words and Lord, we think about unity and Lord, the reality is, is that most of the time we shrug our shoulders when we talk about the unity and we, we move on. And yet if your word is to be believed, it's the unity that we demonstrate as a body that shows the rest of the world that you're the one who sent us. And so Jesus, I pray that you would help us embody the humility that you walked with. That we would... not de- would indeed see others as more important than ourselves, that we would be a gentle breeze, that we would be long-tempered, that we would bear with one another in love, and in doing so, Lord, that you would pull this local body together and that the world would be different because of us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. We come together as a family to take communion. And part of the reason that we take communion every week is because this is the one faith that we have. This is our one hope that by Jesus's body being broken, that we're given life. And so today we eat of the bread together, remembering what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because we are all heirs, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus to the family fortune, it's by the blood that is poured out that we know that this is eternal, that this is forever. And so today we drink. Over the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to sing. And during that time, if you need prayer, um, we'd encourage you to get that prayer, maybe today you need some prayer because you have some time in front of you this week where you need to go ask for some forgiveness, and you need the courage to do that. Maybe for others of you, it's a time of confession for someone who's safe. For others of you, maybe you're going through a trying time that you just need this church to know about so that we can pray alongside you. If you need prayer in-house, you can make your way to the banner online. You can push the button. We'd love to pray with you. I'm going to invite everybody in-house to stand as we sing and worship to our Lord and Savior Jesus today.